Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with Sirius XM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about why we say we put the kibosh on something, and we'll talk about sidekicks in fiction. But first, I have an announcement and a correction. First, National Grammar Day is coming up on March 4th, and I'm celebrating with a special Spotify playlist covering the top 10 grammar myths. Listen by searching for Grammar Girl's National Grammar Day playlist only on Spotify. And now for the correction. In the episode before last, in the segment about the spelling of OK, I said that the OKAY spelling is Chicago's style, and that's not right. Chicago allows you to use either OK or OKAY. The closest Chicago gets to recommending the four-letter spelling is saying that it looks more like a word than the two-letter spelling. I already re-recorded that segment and replaced it on the feed, so if you didn't listen to it right away, you might actually find this correction confusing, but I wanted to be sure that I didn't leave anyone with bad information. I was actually flabbergasted that I got it wrong and did a lot of thinking to figure out how that might have happened. The episode was written in the context of my book publisher's preferred spelling, which is different from mine, and I think I must have discussed it with my copy editor at Macmillan. She either told me that OKAY is Chicago style and was wrong, or she told me it was Macmillan's style and I assumed that meant it was Chicago style. But either way, I have completely believed since 2013 that OKAY is Chicago style, which just goes to show you that if it's important, you should always look things up and not just rely on what somebody told you. And now, on to kibosh. Have you ever heard someone say they were going to put the kibosh on something? Did you ever wonder what they meant or what a kibosh is? Well, believe it or not, this has been a long-time mystery of the English language. Multiple theories have been proposed, but none could be proven. Recently, however, three scholars seem to have gotten to the bottom of it. Here's the story. First of all, to put the kibosh on something means you're shutting it down. You're putting the lid on a plan before it can take off, or you're stopping an activity that's already underway. For example, parents might put the kibosh on their teenager's plan to throw a wild party. Or a librarian might put the kibosh on patrons who are munching on burgers and fries while they're handling books. 
This word first showed up in print in 1826 in a London newspaper, and not too long after, etymologists started speculating about where it came from. Theory number one was that kibosh was of Yiddish origin, that it was related to the Hebrew word kibas, meaning to subject, subdue, or tread down. And I'm not certain that pronunciation is right. I couldn't find a pronunciation anywhere. It's spelled K-A-B-A-S. Theory two was that it was related to the Turkish word bosh, meaning empty or worthless. That word came into fashion around the same time that kibosh did, in the 1830s. It appeared in a popular romance titled Aisha, Maid of Cars. And that's like Maiden of Cars, K-A-R-S, not Maid of Automobiles, which I just realized is how it sounds. So Maid of Cars, the tale that told of the intrigues of female life in Turkey. To see this connection, you can imagine a stodgy Englishman saying, Bosh, stuff and nonsense, about the butler's plan to serve bread and butter with tea instead of cake and the gentleman saying he would put the kibosh on the plan straight away. Theory three is that kibosh comes from the Gaelic kapwash, meaning coif of death. This referred to various things. The hood an executioner wore when he mounted the scaffold, the head covering a judge wore when pronouncing the death sentence, or the cap put on a body before it was buried. It was also connected to a gruesome form of torture known as a pitch cap, in which a hat filled with boiling tar was placed on someone's head. This cruel technique was used by the English military during the Irish Rebellion of 1798. Game of Thrones fans will see an analogy between the pitch cap and the golden crown that Caldrogo placed on Viserys' head. Theory four is that kibosh comes from the French word caboche, an informal word for head, and the English word kibosh that came from it. To kibosh means to cut off the head of a deer right behind the horns, not keeping any neck at all. You can see how this violent verb could be extended to mean beheading any sort of idea at all. Theory five is that this word came from a tool that shoemakers used when making clogs. Their kibosh was an iron bar about a foot long that, when hot, was used to soften and smooth leather. A long heated metal bar would indeed be effective for kiboshing just about anything. Nevertheless, the scholar who first proposed this theory has pretty much admitted he no longer thinks it's correct. Theory six, and the one that now seems to be most reliable, is that kibosh can be traced to the Arabic word kurbosh, a whip made of hide. It was sometimes made of hippopotamus or rhinoceros hide, and in all cases it was used as an instrument of punishment. This Arabic word could have been brought to England by immigrants, and that would make sense because the first uses of the word seem to have been in the lower classes of London. As to why kibosh rose from being just another slang term to a phrase we still use today is suggested by three scholars who recently published an entire book on the word kibosh. The authors relate how in 1834, a Cockney chap was brought into court for violating the 1834 Chimney Sweeps Act, a law intended to stop young children from being put into service as chimney sweeps. According to the book, the fellow had an outburst after the trial in which he complained about the British Whig Party and used the expression to put the kibosh on, speaking the whole time in an unmistakable Cockney accent. 
His words were reprinted in newspapers all over England, and soon all types of politicians were talking about putting the kibosh on the Whigs. The word has continued to be popular up through today. In fact, a search of Google engrams, which shows how frequently words are used in books, shows kibosh being used regularly since the mid 1800s and spiking in use since 1980. In short, recent scholars have put the kibosh on older theories about where this word came from. Our best guess today is that it's related to kurbash, an Arabic word for whip. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, Batman and Robin, Xena the Warrior Princess and Gabriel, Buffy, Willow, and Xander. The squad behind Avatar: The Last Airbender, Ang, Katara, Sokka, and Toph. When we think of famous characters in the media, they usually don't come alone. No superhero can go without their trusty sidekicks or their favorite team-ups. While everyone can follow a protagonist's journey, often that trek isn't as meaningful without their friends, their family, and even their rivals joining in. A sidekick is a character who acts as a combination of ally, helper, and foil to the protagonist. Historically, sidekicks have been unfairly reduced to a minor role. Think about how Doctor Watson primarily records the tales of the extraordinary Sherlock, or the talented fighter Cato serves as the driver to the Green Hornet. Today's sidekick characters may not have the same skill set that your protagonist has. On the other hand, modern sidekicks are equally as capable. For example, while Elsa from Disney's Frozen may be the one with the magical powers, her sister Anna has the cheerful determination and big heart to help Elsa overcome her inner demons. Likewise, if your protagonist has a best friend, a partner in crime, or a wingman, make sure their talents and abilities complement each other. Side characters have served multiple purposes as literary devices. The first use of side characters as literary devices can be traced to ancient Greek drama, which always contained a protagonist, an antagonist, and a chorus. The Greek chorus is an early iteration of a protagonist's sidekick. The chorus acts as a commentator on the protagonist's actions, an echo of the larger thematic elements of the play, and can even become a stand-in for the playwright's perspective. Over time, the use of side characters as literary devices has changed when accommodating other genres. For example, in superhero fiction, sidekicks reflect the superhero's inner thoughts and can help prompt the plot's action by helping the hero on their mission. This is why, in early superhero fiction, sidekicks usually didn't have a lot to their backstory outside of their origins alongside the superhero. Another common use of sidekicks as literary devices in fiction is the newcomer character, who acts as the reader insert, a tool to introduce the story's world building and character relationships. In detective fiction, the sidekick asks the questions the reader may have in solving a mystery. In horror stories, a sidekick usually helps the protagonist survive, but often they become the tragic victim while the protagonist escapes. Romance stories typically have two sidekicks, one for each lead in the love plot, 
as those main characters pursue their heart's desires. Modern stories favor presenting side characters as individual people, and new norms have been established in how to use them as literary devices. Side characters can now have their own subplot to parallel the main plot, for example. Or they might be introduced as a sidekick in the first book of a series, only to have a leading role in the next volume. As a writer, you may find imagining your characters to be one of the most exciting parts of telling a story. Yet how do you know if your characters are truly there to strengthen your story? Of course, you may have heard the writing advice that all your characters should be well-rounded, meaning that they should feel like fleshed-out personalities with strengths, flaws, personality quirks, and interests not connected to the protagonist or the plotline. Good characters generally feel like people you know in real life. Memorable characters have the distinction of feeling individualized enough that readers can relate to them as much as they relate to the protagonist. Outside of this adage, though, the role your characters play is equally important to figuring out why they should be in your story. Besides the sidekick and the protagonist, stories can also include the supporting cast, the villain, and the anti-hero. The supporting cast is the cast of characters that gather in support of the protagonist's goal. These types of people may have information the protagonist needs or have qualities that add more dimensions to a character's life. They can also be the characters that populate the settings a protagonist inhabits, whether it be school, a workplace, or local neighborhood haunts. Think, for instance, how often the classmates and teachers show up in middle grade or young adult books siblings and parents in a family drama, the police chief, and newspaper kid who gives the noir P.I. the best tips on the case. These characters' roles are usually limited to the plot. Mentor and authority figures, for example, often only show up when they're needed to give advice or to place obstacles in the protagonist's way. The exception to this, however, is if a supporting character plays a thematic or foil role in the story. In A Christmas Carol, for example, Scrooge is haunted by his old business partner, Jacob Marley, who plays the foil before the three ghosts of Christmas arrive. Marley is a warning that someone as selfish as he can be doomed in the afterlife. Some of the most memorable supporting characters, in fact, are powerful because they serve as a reflection of another aspect of the protagonist's personality or journey. Another character that's framed in relation to the protagonist is, of course, the antagonist. A common misperception about antagonists is that they serve as the evil villain of the piece, or that there can only be one of them in a story. Instead, think of the antagonist as someone who goes against the goals of the protagonist. If the story follows a wayward student who wants to skip school, for example, possible antagonists might include the teachers and principal, but also the parent who wants the student to do well, or the younger sibling who tattles. Antagonists are also created to reflect a warped aspect of the hero's personality. Writers frequently use this concept in superhero stories, but it can pop up in all kinds of stories. The Joker is chaos, while the Batman stands for order. Lex Luthor is the elite and corrupt businessman, while Clark Kent, Superman, is an everyday reporter from small-town Kansas. The most fascinating character type, however, is the anti-hero. 
While there's an opposing quality between the hero and the anti-hero, the anti-hero is a character who possesses sympathetic qualities alongside the negative ones. Anti-heroes may commit crimes to help the public good or despite the hero's ideals. The most intriguing anti-heroes are set up as villains who undergo a change of heart and eventually join the protagonist. Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender is a great anti-hero in this sense. He spends most of the animated TV series chasing after Aang and his friends in order to regain his sense of honor from his father. When Zuko finally realizes that his father is a selfish, cruel ruler, however, Zuko chooses to become Aang's teacher and ally to help save the world. Readers tend to love antiheroes because they represent the most flawed aspects of people while also being very relatable. Now that you have an arsenal of character types to complement your hero, the sidekick, the supporting cast, the antagonist, and the antihero, you can use your craft and imagination to build a dynamic community of people in your writing. That segment was written by Diana M. Foe, an independent scholar, playwright, and Hugo Award-nominated book editor. Learn more about her work and editorial services at dianamfoe.com. Finally, I have two short family stories from Donna. Hi, Mignon. I'm Donna in Burbank, California, and I have a couple of family both from my eldest daughter. The first one, when she was eight years old and swore she did homework that a teacher said she hadn't. She said, no, mom, seriously, I did it. She actually had. She just turned it into the wrong folder and the teacher hadn't seen it. The second one is, as she became a teenager and realized the joys of becoming herself and spending time alone in her room, she started calling it isolation. So thanks. I love what you do. Thanks, Donna. If you want to call with your family word story, your familect story, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl. Thank you to my producer, Nathan Sims. And that's all. Thanks for listening. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.